This evening we'll be looking at one of the primary remedies for the poisons of hatred and anger. With each of these unwholesome states being layered over top of fear, often. So this is also a remedy for fear. The title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love, we will practice it, we will make it both a way and a basis, take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and practices, are about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. So this evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma-vihara, a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship. The experience of an open-hearted connection, that isn't fraught with clinging and attachment and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layers of conditioning that shut us down to others and shut us down to ourselves as well. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experiences with clarity and with kindness. So we'll begin with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular (coughs) and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat a forest adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during this rain's retreat, and who also offered to keep the monks' alms bowls filled uh, during their practice period. And so the monks moved in, and they began practicing vipassana. They began practicing insight meditation. 
it's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived in this same forest, uh, became fearful of the monks and actually felt quite put out of their homes when they saw that the monks weren't visiting the forest for just a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling beings began to create uh, various frightening sounds and frightening sights and emit some very distasteful odors, hoping that this would make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks became quite terrified which in fact then broke their samadhi, broke their concentration and disrupted their mindfulness. Some of them even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was really impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying and they related their tale. Which, to which the Buddha responded, My beloved monks, go back to exactly that same forest and practice your meditation there. The monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they not be sent back to that forest, again saying that it was impossible to practice there. And the Buddha response was this, Dear monks, Because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you have encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and the practice, the metta practice. Out of their great respect for the Buddha, the monks, of course, didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to that same forest. For a while, uh, continued experiencing uh, feelings of fear and anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon enough, there were no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas had previously been hostile toward the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience along with a sense of being connected, like with family. And the inclination arose for the devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from particular dangers such as tigers and poisonous snakes that might be lurking in the forest so that the monks could practice meditation peacefully. After recovering, strengthening, and deepening their concentration and open-hearted presence with practicing metta, 
It's said that all 500 monks at some point began again practicing vipassana meditation with metta that then as their foundation. And it's said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, they all, every one of them, became arhats during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connect with a heart that's fearless, with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, directed towards another particular person, or directed towards a group of beings, wishing one's self and others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale. They are, of course, important on one level, but within this incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and our personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving-kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. The experience of sunshine up here in the mountains is a wonderful experiential metaphor for this uh, capacity, this possibility. So take some 
time to partake of this if you haven't already done so. So where does this capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does this come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never, ever experienced this love this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But actually, really, such people are very, very rare. And in fact, living beings literally can't survive very long without some degree of care and kindness being given to them. Every one of us here has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So a couple of very simple examples, very ordinary experiences. A few days before this retreat began, I walked into the post office uh, down uh, in Taos where I live to pick up my mail. And someone opened the door for me and held it open. I didn't know this person. I hadn't seen them before. And we looked at each other and we smiled at each other. And I thanked her. And I felt this warm connection between us. Just that. That's unconditional kindness. And here in this retreat, a number of times, I and probably some of you have gone down to the dining room for a meal and someone opened the door for you and held it open. Kindness, again, unconditional kindness given freely. And of course, each of us have experienced kindness with people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a more overt and stronger energy. This is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water and fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. We grow it. We cultivate it. 
and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again and again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way, their help. Unconditional kindness given freely. It's a choice, a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from, the other divine abidings, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and equanimity, upekka. It's also the capacity of mind and heart that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in uh, 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs, uh, symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or actually inviting the opening, the expansion of the mind, the heart. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible. It's boundless. Empty. Where from? Where to? And yet, it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the Buddhist texts, it's often spoken of as non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, 
meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind. However, they're manifesting moment to moment to moment. And the absence of ill will towards others. So, no aversion in any direction. Meaning, for instance, no comparing of ourself in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment or depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, how often maybe we've thought that the person next to us or on the other side of the room, how often maybe we've thought that their practice is so much better than mine. Or maybe the comparing mind says, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. The felt judgment, they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that person nodding away, or how restless and moving around so much. Well, obviously this is not metta. And in fact, we're creating a separation. Me, other. The mind and the heart are contracted. The me, the self, looms very large if we feel and see this closely. We see that it looms very large. And... It's uncomfortable. It's unpleasant. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge without judgment that this too is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, attend to the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and also offer metta to the other person in the equation. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature even in relationship to what we think of as our self, what, are, what we are identified with or uh, attached to as a, in either a positive or in a critical way as our self, our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, beliefs, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature, in relationship to other beings as well. A mind, a heart, filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. 
not only those that we're close to in our lives, those that it's easy to care about, or those who might be useful or amusing or pleasing to us. A heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of the capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect to and to care for any being, all beings. The uh, a great Indian teacher, uh, Krishnamurti, wrote in his journal, he wrote this, Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. <clears throat> it's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's, it is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart, of metta connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience, and acceptance. Metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As you are practicing here in, this, in the very specific ways that each of you are, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness and a concentrated clarity of attention, some of you may also be working with the practice of metta at times, either directly or maybe indirectly, meaning attitudinally in relationship to the purifying and healing aspects that an attitude of metta in the mind and heart brings. With all of this, you're learning that the cultivation of metta aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong focused, mindful attention. As happened for the group of monks that the Buddha first taught metta to in the story that I offered at the beginning of this, uh, this evening's Dharma talk. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, There's an unwinding, an unbinding 
of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, hatred, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through our mind and body and heart begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the Indian spiritual teacher, Nisargadatta Maharaj, who uh, taught uh, through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him, one of his students asked him, what can make me love? What can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and so important for me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with or connect with beings who act in ways that we might not like, or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites with metta, no favoring one over another. So it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature. And that it's unconditional. Meaning no conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. Reflecting for just a moment now, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, this world would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up to and including this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been and is increasingly unsettled. More violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together. So essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger says this, 
There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There is no time to go slowly. There is no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis and the impulse, or impetus, excuse me, the impetus that our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and our intentions spring from the heart of metta, the kama that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways way beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, ever know. I'd like to spend a few moments now exploring some expectations that we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be something that we're already very familiar with. It's, of course, impossible to expect to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never experienced, or to look for something that we may have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Most certainly, sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this. It's actually limiting. Metta is not sentimental. It's not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. Metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger in any given moment is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed. It's in this absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling we think of or are maybe familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, free of ill will. So we could say this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through and let go of along the way of our practice.
as I think I've mentioned uh, in an earlier uh, talk, I've found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in the Anguttara Nikaya, the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And the story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindaka's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, Lord, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you are ready. And the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat, bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and left on his journey without an apology. Right away the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and tell the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. And then the Buddha called two of his other disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, to go around to all of the monks' lodgings and to say, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today, the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula, the Buddha's son, when he was 18 years old. And this is, uh, uh, he's going to remember the same sutta that I uh, offered during the um, talk of the uh, unguided sit with the four elements. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air to nourish and to develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body 
in the actions of the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances or dirty substances, unclean substances upon the earth, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean. Yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful, and yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing, and yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movements of the body in the movements of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have... Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat 
arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and with his head on the ground bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accused the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded to this monk, saying, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It is a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense, makes amends, and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to the venerable Sariputta, saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on the spot. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon. As I may have not been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he too forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is one of the best medicines, a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, naturally loving. Connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. We see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it into my mouth with a big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago now, I read a book that was about, uh, about and by a 102-year-old uh, African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read, until at the age of 98, he decided to attend a literacy program. He learned how to read at the age of 98, and he then wrote a book about himself. It's an amazing, inspiring, and illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world 
and to survive in it. And I'd like to read uh, a little bit uh, to you from this book. At one point in the book, George is having a conversation with Richard. Uh, Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So Richard speaking. You're not alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George speaking. That's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. Richard. That sounds like a riddle. George. It does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard. What goes around, comes around. George. That's right, it all comes back. Everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good, just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard, people worry too much? George, that's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a mind, of a heart, steeped in kind-heartedness, I'd like to continue a little bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old uh, as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, He was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking, or writing. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs, and another she set up on the shelf that was out of reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, 
and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted, but I wasn't an animal and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she would go on believing that way, and maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being, he said. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry, she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back anymore. I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you might react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped, often very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habitual patterns of our self. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey, is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, 
strength and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. Suan was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Suan's mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind unsupervised wanderings and later cruising around in cars were out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's son, teenage son, came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Raul said, Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. At one time or another, they did them all, cross-country running and track, volleyball, cheerleading, softball, basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise very faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play uh, 
play non-Indian teams, the question of race is usually there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will become unwelcome. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees, in fact, will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams sometimes got harassed was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of the late 1980s, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot a few baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. After the home team, then after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Danny DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others yelled, where's the cheese? The joke being as if that the Indians were lining up, that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind her. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Sue Ann turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. Then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Sue Ann knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl, and the dance she chose was a young woman's dance graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie Corey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. She began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance, using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. 
All that stuff the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. And in the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Sue Ann dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. She sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball through the hoop, and the fan, with the fans cheering very loudly now. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leeds. And I agree. This was Sue Ann's Lion's Roar. And um, a poem from Hafiz called The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look at what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle. Because of the power behind because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a, a difficult situation. Do what seems to come naturally. And then after the fact, realize that you handle the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time, you do what seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say, to a friend who asks you, how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and changes the lives of everyone you encounter. And a poem, or an excerpt, actually, from a poem 
called To Begin With the Sweet Grass by Mary Oliver. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other, or another. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And closing the talk with some instructions from the Buddha. And this is the Metta Sutta, uh, translated from the Pali by the monks from the Amaravati Monastery in England. (coughs) This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and one who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short, or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born And to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down. One should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Not born again into this world of suffering. And let's sit quietly for just a couple moments.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.